0: 2 Kings chapter 3, a lot in this chapter. Means we'll probably get through like a verse and a half. Remember, the whole theme of the book of Kings is covenants and character. We're looking at God's promises and how He's faithful. He's got His character, doesn't change. He's faithful to His promises. We're looking at the kings of Israel and some of the other individuals in Israel. Their covenant, their faithfulness to their promises is not quite the same as God's and their character is oftentimes up or down. And so, but learning from both of them, we learn to love the Lord and worship the Lord and see His faithfulness more, but we also, we learn from the good and the bad lessons of the the good and bad character that we see from these kings. And chapter two is interesting because we didn't talk about any kings in chapter two. Chapter two served as a connecting point between two kings, uh, Ahaziah and Jehoram. Both were Ahab's sons, but the reason there is this kind of dividing chapter 2 here is so that when we get to chapter 3 and we see Jehoram on the throne, we won't be surprised when we see Elisha now is the prophet of God instead of Elijah. So in chapter 3, we leave that transition of ministry behind, and we get back to examining the kings of the north, and in particular, this new king, Jehoram. Now again, by way of reminder, Ahaziah and Jehoram were both Ahab's sons. The reason Jehoram becomes the next king is because Ahaziah only reigned for two years before God judged him, and he had no son to take the throne, so his brother becomes king. And while Jehoram is not as bad as his brother or his father, he still doesn't follow the Lord, and that's a problem. Because what God thinks about how you and I should live or, or how you and I should lead if we're in a position of leadership, it's what He thinks about those things is important. And when I don't value what He thinks, I make all sorts of bad decisions like we're going to see Jehoram make here in this chapter. So, chapter 3, verse 1 introduces us to this king and summarizes his reign in the first three verses. It says, now, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned for 12 years. Remember, Jehoshaphat is the… Remember, at this point in time, you've got two kingdoms. Israel's divided. You've got 10 tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. And Jehoshaphat is the godly king in the south, the king of Judah. He's the one who brought an end to strife between the two nations, the, uh, the net north and the south. And it says that he began his reign, Jehoram, and he reigned for 12 years. He began it in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat's reign, which is toward the end of his reign, and he only reigns for 12 years. That's about half the time his father Ahab reigned, but obviously way longer than his brother. In fact, he's going to be on the throne, the king of Israel, for the next seven chapters, so we're going to get to know this guy quite well. But the writer here gives God's verdict on him right at the start of the story. Verse 2, "...and he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord." So, God found his behavior to be displeasing, wicked, and unacceptable. But note here, the writer points out, but not like his father and like his mother, for he put away the image, the idol of Baal that his father had made. Now, that that is a big change. Mom's still alive at this point. That's Jezebel. And, uh, and the position of the queen mother was, held a lot of power. So this is a big step for him to get rid of his father's worship, the Baal worship. But it's interesting, even though he gets rid of that, God still says his behavior was unacceptable and evil. Why? Verse 3. Nevertheless, even though he put away the idol of Baal, nevertheless he cleaved under the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He did not depart therefrom. So he was, the word cleave here, it's the same word used in Genesis 2.24 when it says that, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. The idea of like permanently being committed to your wife it has, conjures the idea of like superglue, you know, the idea of being permanently stuck together. This is how his, his view was toward the golden bull worship, the, the two bulls that Jeroboam set up, one in Bethel and one in Dan. He was all in on the golden bull worship. And so God's problem with him is, yeah, he got rid of the idol of Baal, but he still led the nation into sin. Oh, they called those golden bulls representations of Jehovah, the Lord, and, and the things that took place in those two worship centers. They had the appearance of the sacrifices and the worship that took place in the temple in Jerusalem, but all of it had nothing to do with knowing the Lord. There's a book I read years ago called Samson of a Man. It's an autobiography by Kevin McDowell. It's, it's a rough book to read. Uh, this is a man who had been an assistant pastor for years, but all the time he was in the ministry, he was secretly steeped in pornography and substance abuse. And so eventually when it came out, he was in and out of jail after he, you know, was put out of the ministry. He was in and out of jail most of his young adult life because he would get drunk and then, or high, and then he would publicly expose himself, sometimes to minors. Horrible story. But as you read through his, his account of his life, he says, I eventually cleaned up my life. I, I sobered up. I left the sexual sin behind. I even landed a decent job, even became an elder at a, at a church again. But as a middle aged man, he would stare in the mirror every day and feel empty and lost. Why? He had, I mean, he cleaned everything up. Why? Well, he, he tells his story, he says, because I never knew the Lord. I never knew the Lord. Never. Not not at any point in his life. The point of his whole biography is, is that whether it was the ugly part of the life or the respectable part of his life, God wasn't pleased with any of his life because cleaning up my act and looking respectable isn't the same thing as being born again. It's not the same thing. When you look at Samson's life, that's why he titled it that way, it's like Samson's life is such a sad story because he's empowered by God, he's anointed and gifted by God, But you see no relationship with the Lord. Jehoram may not be the poster child for evil like his parents were or even his brother was, but God says he was still a wicked man. I think it would be the most common response to reading this is that, well, he got rid of Baal worship because he was trying to please the Lord, but the truth is he could have just dumped Baal because worshiping Baal wasn't helping the nation. There's all sorts of reasons he could have done that. A person can go back to their roots without actually knowing the Lord. If I grew up in church and left the church and then go back to church, I can do that and still not know the Lord. So before we dig into some of the things that this king did in this chapter that displeased the Lord, we, we should ask ourselves the question, do I know the Lord? Or am I relying upon my respectable life to make me right with God? am I relying upon the fact that, well, I'm not Ahab or Jezebel or some other obviously evil person in history to be enough for God? The answer, of course, that's no, but that's the the question that only you can answer as you ask the Lord. Well, Jehoram starts his reign with a problem he inherited from his brother. Verse 4 explains it to us. It says, and Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep master, and he rendered unto the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and 100,000 rams with the wool. But it came to pass when Ahab was dead that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. David, decades prior to this, defeated the country of Moab, and the terms of Moab's surrender included an agreement to become Israel's vassal state, which means they had to give them a certain amount of their income, they had to pledge their allegiance, all that kind of thing. These animals, the sheep and the goats, or uh, the lambs and the rams, that was part of their tribute agreement to prove their allegiance. And as you can imagine, that was a huge burden on Moab's economy. So when Ahab died, they decided to stop paying it and declared their independence from Israel. Now, we already knew about that from chapter 1. We know from chapter 1 that that was part of God's discipline to get Jehoram's brother's attention. God was trying to get his attention after Ahab died to say, you need to get right with me but of course we know that his brother didn't repent. So now Jehoram's king, and he's stuck with the consequences. But now he's got an opportunity to repent, and yet instead of turning to the Lord in repentance, Jehoram takes the Moab situation into his own hands. Look at verse 6. And King Jehoram went out of Samaria the same time and numbered all Israel. And he went and he sent to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me against Moab to battle? And he, Jehoshaphat said, I will go up. I am as you are, My people as your people, and my horses as your horses. So, as soon as Jehoram becomes king, because it says he does this at the same time, as soon as he becomes king, as soon as he starts his reign, he sets out to crush Moab's rebellion. And he numbers the people, he mobilizes them for military purposes, and then he asks the king of Judah to join him in the fight. Now, he knows by asking the king of Judah that he's also going to end up getting the king of Edom to join in the war effort because Edom was Moab's neighbor to the south, and they were a vassal state to Judah at that time. So this is a, from a military strategy, this is a good strategy, looking in the natural. He says, let's do this. Will you come with me in this? Because he knows he's going to get Edom too. It'll be three against one. We'll smash him. And so Jehoshaphat says, yeah, I'll go up. Now remember, Jehoshaphat, he's a godly king. But this was the same thing, was the same thing he said when Ahab asked him to go to battle, remember? And that didn't work out so well, did it? You know, he said, Ahab, your people are my people, I'm as you are, let's do this. But he almost died when he joined Ahab's war effort against Syria, and God rebuked him for that. And then later on, God judged Jehoshaphat's economic joint venture with Ahab's son Ahaziah by destroying their ships and sent a prophet to explain this to Jehoshaphat. And he said, Jehoshaphat, the reason God did this is because you're allied with a man who doesn't love me, who's a wicked man. So the question is, why is Jehoshaphat agreeing to join this wicked man in another war? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Perhaps Jehoshaphat heard about him removing the idol to Baal and thought, well, he's a better man. Maybe this guy's on the right track. But again, I would suggest to you that being unequally yoked isn't about a decent person partnering with an indecent person. I hear this sometimes from people who are dating, and they'll say, yeah, you know, I'm dating somebody, and I'm like, okay, well, what, what are, do they love Jesus? I'm like, well, well, they treat me really well. Okay, well, that's, that's not what I asked. I'll ask people if they're struggling their walk with the Lord, one of the first things I say is, well, hey, how's your Bible reading going? Why well, I listen to a lot of worship music. That's not what I ask. <laughs> Being unequally yoked, that's about someone who knows the Lord partnering with someone who does not know the Lord. That's the problem. It's not that your goals don't align. It's not that it's not that they're not two decent people. It, 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 like they, they have to be the worst person in society, and you know, and you're a believer. No, it's it's a believer and an unbeliever partnering together. Jehoshaphat might be a fellow Israeli, like my people might be your people, but he's not as he is. When he says, "I am as thou art," that is a not true statement, because I'm right with God and you're not. I know the Lord and you don't. If you want to partner with someone or marry someone, the criteria isn't are they a decent person? The criteria is do they love Jesus? Are you going to get into business with them, whatever? You're going to do something that's an intimate type of agreement like that partnership. The question needs to be do they love Jesus? But once Jehoram secures Jehoshaphat's help, they sit down to strategize. Verse 8. And he said, Which way shall we go up? So Jehoshaphat says, You know, what's the plan? What's your plan? And he, Jehoram, answered and said, The way through the wilderness of Edom. Jehoshaphat asked which way they should attack from, and Jehoshaphat suggests a way the Moabites would not expect. Let's invade Moab from the south by marching their troops through the desert region that's south of the Dead Sea. Now, on paper that 's a smart tactic because Moab, if you attack them from the north, they can always withdraw behind the Arnon River in the north of their lands and that 's going to be a pain to cross when people are slinging stones at you or firing arrows at you or chucking spears at you that 's not going to be an easy ground to take so even if, if you outnumber them you 're going to take a lot of losses. The mountains that formed their, their, the southern border of Moab were a better natural defense against invasion from the south, but if Edom gives permission to use their mountain passes, that changes the problem. So, in Jehoram's mind, this is an easy victory, a foolproof plan. we got three nations against one, and it's a bold strategy. Foolproof, right? <laughs> on paper, yes, but in reality, no. And this is our first example of Jehoram doing evil, because his habit, as we'll see throughout the course of his reign, is to lean on his own understanding instead of looking to the Lord for wisdom. David is called a man after God's own heart because for the most part, he didn't rely on his own wisdom and his own experience. David, we find him frequently saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? Like, look, and he's leading the nation, particularly in war. He's like, where do you want us to attack? What do you want us to do? He's asking God for specific instructions. It's not that David didn't know how to prosecute a war. He's a general. He's a decorated general. He's, a vi- He's got tons of victories under his belt, but he still, every time he goes right to the Lord and says, Lord, what do you want us to do? Trusting the Lord with all my heart pleases the Lord, but leaning on my own understanding is evil in God's eyes. Now, why is that the case? Well, whenever ignore what the Lord says, or I I don't seek out what the Lord says, and I rely on my own ability to figure out a situation, there's a sense where I become my own God. There is a sense where I become my own God. Jehoram may not have worshiped Baal, but to some degree he worshiped himself. Because what we're going to see him doing all throughout the course of his reign is he's going to give his thoughts about a situation the priority in his life. His ideas, his thinking is always going to have the priority in his life, and the Bible tells us that that's a position that belongs to the Lord alone. He alone is to hold that position in our life. So what position does the Lord have in your life? Is is what He thinks the most important thing to you? I mean, ultimately, when it comes down to, like, what we're going to do in life, I mean, there are… There are certainly there are things in life that the Bible doesn't cover. If you have kids, you understand that. Like there are times your kid does something, you're like, what? I don't even know what to think about this. Like, where do I find a verse to cover this? You have principles still, of course, and those guide us. But I'm just saying it may not address the specific situation of your four-year-old who still thinks poo is an art form. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 comes with a promise. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He'll direct your paths. He'll make them straight. That means that when I lean on my own understanding, no matter how good my strategy is, there's no guarantee my path will be straight. There's no guarantee it will work. And what we're going to find out in verse 9 is that Jehoram's strategy No pun intended, went horribly south. It says in verse 9, so the king of Israel went, and the king of Judah, and the king of Edom, so three kings, three nations, and they, King James says, fetched a compass. It means they traveled in a circle, and if you're going to go around, you got the Dead Sea here, and you're going to come down around the Dead Sea and invade through the southern part of Moab. So they they come down, and they come down below the Dead Sea. And when you come down south below the Dead Sea, that is all a desert area. And it says that they came down around there, and they did it for seven days. And there was no water for the host and for the cattle that followed them. I've been to Israel. Even if I was walking in current day situation, it would not take me seven days to get from there to there. Even without knowing the mountains, without knowing the desert, it's not going to take me seven days to get from there to there. The journey took longer than usual because whatever water sources they expected to find along the path that they had planned to take, they weren't sufficient to supply the army. And so after seven days of unsuccessfully searching for an adequate place to resupply, Jehoram concludes that the Lord is against them. Look at verse 10. And the king of Israel said, alas, that the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Alas, there is a cry of alarm. You know, what's wrong? Like, what's our problem? Why can't we find this? And he goes, aha, I've figured out the problem and it's awful. What's the problem, Joram? The Lord has called us here to destroy us. What? when did the Lord call you to this plan of action? Where's that gear? When did you ask Him what to do? Why in the world are you blaming God when you completely ignored His input during your planning process? That conversation happens with some regularity in my office. Why God just doesn't love me? Wait a second. Okay, so let's, let's get this straight. God's Word says this. You disobeyed Him. Things didn't work out, but it's God's fault. yes. (laughs) Let's start over. (laughs) Let's go back to the beginning and see where this this whole path ended up this way. Most of life's decisions, as I said earlier, can be discerned by looking at God's Word. Love your wife like Christ loved the church. Be tender-hearted to each other and forgive each other. If you're struggling with your thought life, put those unbiblical thoughts in jail. Take them captive and then replace them with whatever things are true, honest, just, pure, right? Like we've got tons of Scripture that deals with most situations in our life. Most stuff, we can dial it down to to two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then we look at all the commands, how they explain to do that, right? Like all the principles in the Scripture explain how to do that. Most stuff we face in life falls under that category. Most of our problems can just be resolved by obeying what God has already revealed in His Word. But… Some of our challenges or problems exist because we never sought the Lord about the things that the Bible doesn't specifically command. Like, there'll be times when people will come to me and, and they'll say, Pastor, will pray for me. I mean, I've got this job, you know, interview coming up and I really want this job. Pray for me that I get the job. That's a hard thing to pray for because, like, I don't know if that's, like, the best thing for you. And sometimes when people ask me that, I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure that's not the best thing for you. So, like, when, you, when we have situations like that where we don't know, it's good that they want to pray and seek the Lord. That's good, but we usually get into trouble when we start moving forward where we don't have any specific commands from God. Like, for example, let's take the job situation, the job scenario, okay? Let, you're going to check all the boxes. All right, is the job, like, illegal? You know, like, is, you know, am, are they asking me to be an axe murderer, right? You know, I can't be an axe murderer for Jesus, all right? does the job violate any of the callings that God has upon my life? Am I a married man? Okay. God's calling me to go minister to the jungles of South America. Buy honey, buy kids. No, can't do that. That's not the Lord's will, right? He wants me to be faithful to my spouse, right? So like, we go through, like when we have that, so let's say we tick all the boxes, the jobs, like there's nothing morally wrong with the job, there's nothing morally wrong about the decision we would make to take the job as regarding my prior callings to God. There's nothing in it's not going to take me to a place where I won't have a solid Bible teaching church, you know, I won't have a good support system. We look at all the principles there for wisdom, and everything checks the boxes. But you still can't know for sure if it's the Lord, right? Because we don't have a We don't have a scripture. You say, "Well, God told me." Be careful with that. Be very, very careful with that, because if it's not in here, none of us can ever say with absolute authority, "God told me." And and when I play that card, I I put that on the table. No one can speak into your life anymore. No one can. So, how do we, you know, handle that? Well, we pray. We seek counsel. We, we, we seek the Lord. And so, like I said, some of our problems exist because we just kind of check all the boxes in these situations because it's not specifically in the Scriptures, but we don't seek counsel, and we don't seek the Lord. Or we convince ourselves a course of action is biblical when it's not. You see, Jehoram somehow convinced himself that attacking Moab was a no-brainer. Even though if we search the Scriptures, there's no command from Israel, you are to You are to make sure Moab is your vassal state. There's no command from God there. That was a byproduct of of Moab fighting against David and Moab losing. That was not something God necessarily commanded and said, this is what Israel's going to do for all time. But somehow he convinced himself this was a no-brainer. This is God's will, even though the Bible had nothing to say about it. Maybe God did want him to defeat the rebellion, but maybe God didn't. All we know for sure is that God let the rebellion happen to get his brother's attention, right? And since he's the king now, it's there to get his attention. In other words, the one thing that God wanted Jehoram to do in this situation, Jehoram didn't do. He didn't give his attention to the Lord. He didn't repent. He didn't enter into a relationship with the Lord. And so, because Jehoram isn't right with God, he completely misreads the reason why they're in this awful situation. And so, this is our second example of of Jehoram doing evil. He had an ideology in his mind where he saw God just like he saw the false gods that other nations worshiped. In other words, sometimes the Lord does make mistakes. Sometimes the Lord becomes fickle and uncaring. He doesn't care about us. He's fickle. Moabs are enemies, but he sent us out here to die, to be defeated. Maybe you've had those thoughts. That God's against you lately? That God's not keeping his promises? Do you have a mildly pagan view of the Lord? If some of that hits close, then I would encourage you Instead of continuing this kind of pattern of of blaming God or attributing character flaws to Him, perhaps it's time to consider that maybe you're not doing the right thing or you're not where He wants you to be. A lot of times when we kind of go through that cycle as I'm trying to help somebody, and I kind of keep trying to point it back, like, have you considered about your decisions? Have you considered about your behavior? Have you considered that maybe you're not where the Lord wants you to be? Challenges in life, they don't always mean I'm out of God's will, of course. I mean, if we default to that every single time, I don't think that's healthy either. But because sometimes God allows… Like the Bible says in, in I want to say it's first Peter chapter 4, the last verse, there is a suffering according to the will of God, right? There are challenges we face that's according to God's will. It's part of what He wants to do in our life. He's shaping us and molding us through those sufferings, through those trials, through those challenges. But I do think every believer should always assume that God doesn't make any mistakes, right? Like, that's the starting point. I love what Pastor Chuck used to say. He had a few of these isms, things that he just said all the time. And one of the things he used to say to us, he said, When you, when you don't understand, he said, When you don't understand what's going on, fall back on what you know to be absolutely true. And so, when I've had those moments where I'm like, God, what are you doing? There's a few things that I just kind of, okay, let's find some, let's find up in all this swamp of, you know, quicksand, let's find one piece of solid ground. And one of those pieces of solid ground is God does not make mistakes, right? That's one of those places that you can plant your feet and go, all right, I'm on some solid ground here. Everything around me is a mess, but this is solid. This I know right now. Another one that you can plant your feet on is God loves me, Right? Another one I can plant my feet on is God's for me, He's not against me, right? We have precious promises from God that we can plant our feet on when we have no clue what God is doing. And that's the exact opposite of what this king does here. Well, thankfully, King Jehoram's statement is not the only statement going on because there's a believer present with him. And Jehoshaphat comes to a different conclusion than despairing and blaming God. Verse 11, but Jehoshaphat said, "'Is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him?' I love this. He says, "'Can we please ask God what to do? <laughs> like, is, is there a prophet here? We haven't done that at all so far. Can we just find out what God wants us to do?' And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, "'Well, here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elisha, Elijah.'" Elijah poured water on his hands, it means he was his servant. He, he was his assistant. He, 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 he did all those kind of basic needs that Elijah had so Elijah could focus on the calling that God had on his life. Now, we read this, and I kind of chuckle because, like, Elijah is the exact opposite of what we find here. Like, Elijah's just all over the map, right? Like, he's all over the map. You're like, where's Elijah now? Nobody knows. We all of a sudden, we read this story, and Elijah's traveling with the army, It's it's such a different thing. Like, I read that, and the first thing that crossed my head is, what are you doing here? Like, why are you traveling with the army? The Bible doesn't tell us. But I think this makes Jehoram's attitude and his actions up to this point even more wrong. He, He had God's messenger in his midst the whole time, but he never sought the Lord? Like, how many days does it have to take? Like, day four, he'd be like, maybe we should ask God. We've got Elijah right here. Elijah, what do you think? Seven days going around in circles, looking for water, no success, and you don't even go to God's prophet. I remember a time when Bev and I were having a financial challenge that stressed me out so much, and I saw no way that it would work out. I was angry. I was scared. I felt helpless. And Bev kept encouraging me. She said, let's pray. First day she told me that, I went to bed, didn't pray with her. The next day, I'm all mad. I'm frustrated, whatever. And she's like, "Hey, we should pray," and I'm like, like, "You know, I've just got more frustrated." But after a few days, I finally listened. It was probably the least faith-filled prayer ever. It was like an angry prayer. I said, God, you know, our situation's rough right now. I don't know if you remember this prayer, but it was just, it was not like a faithful prayer. Like, you know, God, you know, you know, the situation's challenging right now. And we got all this mess, we got all this stuff going on. And Lord, I don't even know what's going on. Please help us through this. Amen. Good night. <laughs> I just went through the motions. I just stayed angry the entire time. But something happened over the next few days when we would pray together about it. As we would pray over the next few days, my prayer started to change. God began to deal with my heart as I prayed. Then my attitude started to change, and and then just started to at peace, just trust the Lord with this thing. And and of course the Lord, as he always does, he met our need. And maybe not like I wanted him to, but he met our need. What if I didn't have a wife who kept encouraging me to seek the Lord? What if I never listened to her encouragement? I mean, can you imagine what, the condition of my heart after seven days of resisting doing things God's way? I mean, I can understand why he's like, "Ah, God hates us." Yeah, you're not talking to him. You ever had one of those situations where, like, I think so and so's mad at me? Well, oh, would you talk to him? Well, no, they're mad at me. Then the next day, they're like, "They've hated me for years." Seven days later, you're convinced they're going to break into your home and murder you. They've been talking about me. They've this, they've that. And then you go, and you're like, hey, are you mad at me? are like, no, why do you think that? Well, you know, you, you didn't say hi to me the other day. It's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I had a migraine. You're like, oh, I'm a jerk, you know. <laughs> Seven days of st- doing and leaning on his own understanding, not spending any time with the Lord, not seeking God, led Jehoram to conclude that God was bad. And it's crazy because even after they get this news, it's Jehoshaphat who has to speak. There's a prophet here. It's Jehoshaphat who has to speak and go, oh, this is good. This is good. Let's find out what God says. It says, and one of the king of Israel's servants said to him, he's here in verse 12, and Jehoshaphat said, oh, the word of the Lord is with him. Uh, this is good. Like no one else is like, yay. I mean, they're all I mean, nobody's happy. Nobody's like, this is great. Good news. We can get an answer from God. They're all just kind of whatever. And he has to speak up and go, okay, well, this is good. The word of the Lord's with him. So they head off to go see Elisha. It says, Then the king of Israel and Joseph and the king of Edom went down to him. Verse 13. So Elisha sees him come, and Elisha says unto him, the king of Israel talks to him. He says, what have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. And the king of Israel said unto him, nay, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. He's like all in on this viewpoint. Now, this phrase, what have I to do with thee, that, that sounds pretty harsh. You know, it's almost like, you know, the king of Israel comes walking in the tent. And Elijah's like, what are you doing here? I can't stand your guts. Get out of here. That's not what he's saying. The, the phrase, what have I to do with thee, is, is literally like, what, what common ground do we have that would bring us together? What are you doing here? Like, we don't talk. Like, you don't listen to me when, when we talk. He says, go to your, the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. His father, the, he was full on in the golden bull uh, worship. His mother worshiped Asherah or Baal. Go to those prophets, which, by the way, means that he, even though he took his dad's idol away, He didn't outlaw idol worship in Israel. If These prophets are still around. When Elijah greets him, it's almost like it's a revival of an old argument. Jehoram, what are you doing here? You refuse to repent. Every time I talk to you, you refuse to listen to me. Go to those you like to listen to. Why are you coming to me? I think Elijah's being to the point, I don't think he's trying to be rude. He's, I think he's just pointing out the fact that his advice will only be helpful if the king's willing to repent. But Jehoram has an interesting reply. He goes, no, I'm not going to them because my problem's with God. My problem's with the Lord. So I'm here to, I'm here to talk to you. Again, when he says, I will not do so, I'm not going to go to the false prophets, that's not an indicator that he's willing to repent. In fact, his explanation that he already has the situation figured out shows his stubborn unbelief. I'm here because this is the Lord's fault, so I have no business with other gods or prophets. You're his prophet. I want to find out what's going on. Now, that kind of answer doesn't normally get a good response from the Lord, right? But because of Jehoshaphat's presence, the Lord tells Elisha to get involved. Look at verse 14. Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat the king of Judah, I would not look toward you nor see you. This phrase, as the Lord lives, again, it's, it's the strongest oath an Israeli can make, the reality of Jehovah. As sure as God's alive, which he, that's the most sure thing there is in this world. And then he says, before whom I stand. That's a, a phrase that is used to indicate one's service to a king. This is the same word that Elijah used when he spoke to King Ahab. He says, you need to know where my loyalties lie. My highest loyalties lie with my King, the Lord. So, as surely as He's alive and I serve Him, my loyalties to Him alone, were it not that I regard, the word regard means to respect or honor the presence of Jehoshaphat, the King of Judah, I wouldn't even look toward you nor see you. Again, Elijah uses heavy language with King Jehoram, but he needs to say it. You're so stubborn and you're so hard-hearted. Nothing I say would matter to you. The only reason I'm going to talk is because there's a man here who wants to know what God says. You know, when the only words God has for me are these kind of rebukes, things are at the very worst place they can be, aren't they? So, has your heart grown hard? Have you become so stubborn you refuse to listen to all the people who care about you, who want to point you in the direction of the Lord? it's not a good place to be. Well, verse 15, Elijah says, but now, since Jehoshaphat's here, bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. Now, this is an interesting preceding verse before the ditches verse. Bring me a minstrel. What's that all about? Is he like, you know, I need some music because you stress me out. Like, I really need to hear from the Lord, and all I want to do is punch you in the face. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I would say this is as good a time as any to talk about the fact that there's a lot of weird teaching about music in the church today. For example, a lot of songs have been recently written and are sung in churches about music being a weapon against the enemy to which I I would say, if that's the case, that music is a weapon against the enemy, why didn't Jesus just start singing shackles or this is how I fight my battles when the devil tempted Him? Jesus said, it is written. Music, when used correctly, it has awesome purposes. It's either to exhort myself to do the right thing. Like a lot of times when I'm singing a song, I'm, I'm like exhorting myself to do the right thing. I'm singing it because I'm, I'm working up the courage to do what I've, I've, you know, I'm committing to the Lord to do. Sometimes it's to exhort someone else to do the right thing. The Bible says, speak to one another and, you know, to yourselves. It means to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. And sometimes when we're singing a song, we're talking about the Lord's mighty and He's holy and He's righteous. There's a lot of times as we're all singing that together as a church, there's somebody here who needs to be reminded of that. Sometimes the right way to, the correct way to use music is to declare a truth about God just to worship Him, to declare that that's true, God, what you say in your words is true about yourself. And then, of course, music is sometimes to say something to God, just to tell Him you love Him, you surrender your life to Him, you need Him, you're desperate, you know, all the things that we can experience in life. But when you look through the Scriptures, music is never something, as far as like worship, it's not something we ever sing to the enemy or at the enemy. That's not not where it serves its purpose. I get it. Shouting worship music at the enemy might make you feel good, but it's not going to accomplish anything lasting. My weapons against the enemy are are twofold. I mean, threefold if you count prayer. But my, my weapons generally in the scripture are described as twofold. Number one, the Word of God, sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then secondly, the other weapon against the enemy is my position in Christ. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it says, they overcame him by what? The word of their testimony and the blood of the Lamb, right? So, so when we look at, the, like, what, what are the weapons I yield against the enemy? It's, it's, it is written, and it's, I'm in Christ, dude. Go take it up with my lawyer. Like, why are you bothering me? Like, I, I'm, I'm a child of the king. I don't need to address you. If, if you have an issue with me, you want to condemn me, you want to whatever, you want to tempt me, take it up with, with Jesus. I have an advocate with my, my father, and he prays for me every day. He loves me. He died for me. I'm, I'm in Christ. I'm a joint heir with him. I don't even need to deal with you anymore. You're a defeated foe. So, our weapons are the Scriptures and our position in Christ. Believers often will say, well, when I'm, you know, I'm angry at my, my spouse or the kids, or I'm frustrated with my coworkers, or when I'm experiencing temptation, I try to listen to more worship music. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing to do, but I would say it'd be more beneficial to read some Scripture and meditate on what it says Jesus did for us, or who God is, or what we're supposed to do, because then you can say, it is written… When you're struggling with being kind, you can say, "It is written. I'm not going to. I'm not going to think on those thoughts. I'm not going to get bitter at them. It's written. Be tender-hearted. Forgive each other. Love one another." When you're struggling with giving into temptation, you say, "Listen. There's no weapon formed against me that shall prosper. It's written. I don't need this. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I don't need this thing you're telling me I need. I don't need to give into this thing you're telling me I need to give into." Music, while it ministers to our our soul, it doesn't have the supernatural ability, though, to strengthen my spirit. Not unless it's the words I'm meditating on, the scriptural thoughts that, that are in it. It doesn't have the supernatural ability to change my heart or make me more obedient in and of itself. Singing worship or speaking truth through music can be a wonderful addition to being in the Word. Very often, I have found that truth-filled lyrics accompanied by skilled musicians stir me up to be thankful, or stir me up to surrender, or stir me up to obey, or to see the power and the majesty of God. In other words, they remind me to live out what I'm reading in my Bible. Now, it doesn't say what type of music Elijah asked for, but I can't imagine it was Israel's greatest poppets. It doesn't even say if they were singing, to be honest. But if I had to guess, I think whatever music was being played, and however… whether they were singing or not, I'm sure the goal was to create an environment where people would be reminded, let's worship the Lord. We've just had this testimony from a king who says, God's against us. He's brought us here to kill us. We need to change that. We need to revamp that thought. And so to create an environment where we're going to remember who the Lord is, and and we're going to reflect on on truth. And so when your mind accuses God of being unfaithful or, or bad, I do think worship is always a great response to help tune out the lies And then as we speak or meditate on those truths. And I find very often in that environment of recognizing and declaring who God is, that the Lord will speak to our hearts. We don't worship at church before we have the message so our hearts can be prepared. We worship God because He deserves our worship. But it does have that wonderful side effect of kind of preparing our hearts as we yield to Him in worship to receive His Word a bit better. And so, as the music is going, the Lord speaks to Elijah's heart. And he said, this is God's message. I want you to make this valley full of ditches. Now… Valley is a little bit misleading. The word here for valley is the wadi, and that is not something we tend to have in our culture, okay? If we're traveling through Florida, you might find a stream somewhere or whatever, but most of us, if we come into kind of a, an area where there's a stream, we don't have to worry about like drowning, okay? Like suddenly the water's just going to rush in and we're going to drown, In the Middle East, because of the way the the mountains and the valleys work over there, that's why they call them wadis. They usually are these very high type of like steep cliff situations, and they just the the wadis they just they cut through the mountains. So you've got these steep high walls of rock, and then with a stream that's kind of coming through that. And the problem is, is because of these valleys and these these mountains that are all over Israel. If you ever look at a topographical map of Israel, it's very unique because it, like they call it the five fingers. They've got five mountain ranges and then you've got these low valleys in between them. And so when the storm... The storm clouds come in in Israel. Those valleys—they they work like a wind tunnel. And so there are times. I remember being at Israel and being on the Sea of Galilee. I was I went to grab dinner, and I came back. I got in my room. Everything looked fine. I got back in my room, and like not two minutes in my room, it's, it sounded like we were in the middle of a hurricane. And so I went outside. Everything's pitch black. There's lightning. It's just rain is coming down, and it—every the wind's blowing. And I'm like, where did this come from? It's a phenomena over there because the storms, when they come in, they come in super quick. And again, because of the, the, the valleys, these, these, the, the, the wind just, it becomes like a wind tunnel and they just whoosh, they just come down and they catch you out of nowhere. It's like, you know, the couple of times you see the disciples caught in a storm, you're like, guys, go get like, read a weather you know, book or something. No, it's not. It's because you get in the, in the sea and everything's fine. And within a matter of just a few minutes, you can be in the heart of the worst storm you've ever seen. So these wadis are dangerous because if a storm hits when you're in there, it might look like this, you know, placid little stream that's only going from me to the second row over there. But if you're in the middle of the valley and the, the water starts churning down there, it comes so quickly that these things get flooded out. So this is the problem, though. They had come to one of these wadis expecting to find water, but it was all dried up. And so the Lord says, go into that death trap, well, there's no water, and fill the whole thing with holes. Dig holes throughout the entire thing. It's what it says there. It says in verse uh, 16, make this valley full of holes, of ditches, of holes. Well, (laughs) sending men into this narrow area to dig would be dangerous for two reasons. As I mentioned earlier, they could be trapped there if a rainstorm occurred and the place became flooded. But secondly, that's like the worst place to get ambushed ever. If the Moabites catch him, all these soldiers, what are you doing? We're digging holes. A lot of men could die. And like I said, Elijah says, send your men in there not just to dig a few holes in the ground, but to make the entire stretch of this wadi full of holes in the ground. And then he explains why. Verse 17. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, neither shall you see rain, And yet that valley shall be filled with water that you may drink both you and your cattle and your beasts. Elijah tells these kings, you've heard the story of what my master did, how he closed up the heavens for three years, and then he prayed, and a massive storm came in. He goes, this is going to be different than that. There won't be a storm, there won't be any rain, but that valley will be filled with enough water for everyone which brings them to the moment of truth. Are you willing to go in there and dig in a dangerous wadi if Jesus tells you to? You say, I'm already in a bad spot. There's no water here. And the solution probably is to turn around or something. The Lord says, no, go keep going. And then I want you to go into this dangerous wadi and dig a bunch of ditches. Are you willing to trust him? Are you willing to expose yourself, in a sense, to more danger when you're already in a dangerous situation? Sometimes that ditch in the wadi is the command to love your wife or submit to your husband or honor your parents or love your enemy. So, Lord, if I do that, they'll take advantage of it. Lord, if I do that, I'll be even in more danger. Or if I do that, it won't work. You see, my pride, my dependence upon what I think is going to happen, my worship of self, is why I so often will look, why we, I say I and we and the royal I and we, this is why believers can look at God's commands in His Word and say, nope, not doing that. I'm not digging a bunch of ditches in a dangerous wadi, that's a stupid idea. I'm not, I'm not going to love, love my wife like Christ loved the church, I do that, this will happen. I understand it, guys, because I know I have a wonderful wife. She loves Jesus. She loves me. But there are times when I don't want to touch that argument with a 10-foot pole or ask that question or whatever. But guys, we can't be afraid afraid to jump into a, a dangerous situation where you go, well, we might end up in a fight. Okay, what's the worst thing that happens? She's mad at you. That's survivable in most cases. we hold back at times. What about our kids? I, I see so many parents who are terrified of their kids today. I understand. Kids are scary, <laughs> right? Like there are times where you're like, what in the world are they thinking? They, they, they come into the world, you know, and from the earliest of age, you're like, who are you? Like, why would you do that? as they get older, there are times they make decisions. Their personalities so different than yours. I mean, you see some of yourself there, but then you see this other thing. You go, where'd that come from? It came from you, didn't it? No. They're their own unique individual. God created them, and they need to be molded and shaped and loved through all that. The Lord says, why don't you go engage with them? <laughs> I'm not going into that wadi. Why don't you to dig a hole? I'm not digging a hole, Lord. I want you to have that conversation with him. Lord, that's a minefield. But I want you to go in there. That's always the moment of truth for us. What will I do with God's words? You know, will I I walk into the wadi where I feel trapped or exposed or unsafe, but convinced that my God loves me and will take care of me and will provide for me? Will I do that? Or will I stay in the desert and keep going in circles? This is a good stopping point, and I'm out of time. So we'll not finish next week because we won't have church next week. But we'll two weeks from today we'll try to finish this chapter up. We will finish this chapter up. But maybe it's maybe it's something I didn't mention. You know, maybe it's maybe it's a, like God's calling you to something. Maybe He's calling you to step out in faith and do something that sounds a little crazy. You're like, like Lord, you want me to go in there and do what? Dig ditches? Yeah. Thus that says the Lord, go in there and fill the whole valley with ditches. Lord, that's dangerous. It's not dangerous because I'm the one calling you in there. I'm with you. I love you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to abandon you. Lord, I'm exposed. I know you're exposed, but I've got you. I, I've got you covered. It's not safe. I know it's not safe, but you're with me. You know, how many times with our kids, they get scared of something and we grab hold of their hand, and like, hey, don't worry, I, I'm with you. We'd say that sometimes to our kids, and we can't protect them, right? Like, we, we, for the most part, we can, but there are things we couldn't protect them from. But our God, He can protect us from anything. And if, if He doesn't, well, then what He's allowed to, you know, it didn't slip through His hands. He's allowed it to pass through His hands. And that means it's okay, because He's still with us. Amen. I don't know what your wadi might be. I sound like a good topical preacher right now. What's your wadi? <laughs> I, I don't know what the thing is that God's telling you to do. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if he's telling you to dig a bunch of holes or something that sounds as silly as that. I don't know if it's an obvious thing, but what is it that God's telling you to do right now and, and you're just not going in there because you go, it's, it's too hard, too dangerous, it's unsafe. I feel exposed I just don't think that's a good idea. I want to encourage you as we pray. Just give that to the Lord and say, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you lead me. I'm going to trust that you love me. I'm not going to take your whole stance that you're opposed to me, that you make mistakes or that you're fickle or that you don't care. I'm going to trust that you love me and that you care about me and I'm going to jump on in. I... I like comfort, like I get it, like I'm the guy who like when, you know, Bev brings up, she's like, hey, you know, I saw the houses are coming within our range, da, da, da. and I'm like, i like, why, our house works fine, and it's not because I don't, the other house wouldn't be better, it's just because I don't like moving, I don't like change, I don't like getting out of my comfort zone, but I, I found myself more lately praying, God, take me out of my comfort zone. I don't want to stay where it's safe if going to the unsafe place means that more people will know you. If you want me to go dig a ditch, no matter how crazy it sounds, then I'll go dig a ditch. As we pray, just whatever it is that the Lord's calling you to do and maybe you've been holding back, I want to encourage you to just trust Him that He loves you and that He'll take care of you. Lord, we thank you so much that you love us. We thank you that you loved Jehoram, Lord. You, you loved all those kings. And, and if we keep reading, we know you actually had a plan to take care of them as it concerned the whole Moab situation. But Lord, right now they had nothing. They were in a dangerous spot and you're ready to provide for all their needs. So Lord, help us not to look at our own resources, our own abilities, our own fears, our own concerns and to, and to just keep wandering around in this, this spot or we're just dying. We're starving. We're not engaging with whatever it is you want us to do. We choose tonight to trust you, to say, Lord, I know you love me. I know you don't make mistakes. I know you care, and I want to go wherever you lead. Lord, give every person here that just extra understanding of your love tonight, that they might have the courage to take that step of obedience. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.